Welcome to Apollo's Muses, the COVID culture and cash series. Hello, how are you? Hope you're doing okay wherever you are. My name's David Burgess, I'm director of Apollo Fundraising, and this is episode eight of our COVID culture and cash series of podcasts. As you probably know by now, we're trying to use these podcasts to tell the story of how arts fundraising, particularly in the UK, has responded to coronavirus what steps people have been taking to keep engaged with their supporters, how they've been continuing to raise money for their organisations. And we're now starting to have a think about what comes next. So to put this episode into perspective, uh, this conversation was recorded on the 8th of July, which was a few days after pubs and restaurants began to reopen here in the UK. Uh, We've just heard that outdoor performances and gyms and swimming pools are going to reopen next week. Uh, And I guess uh, particularly important for the arts and culture sector, it comes just a few days after the government announced a £1.57 billion support package for the arts and culture sector. So we're still waiting for details on how that's going to be used, how that money is going to be distributed to organisations and how they're going to make sure that money gets out as quickly as possible. I mean, we know it's already come too late for for a number of organisations. But I guess there's a a mood of cautious optimism uh, following that announcement over the weekend. So in previous episodes, we've looked at specific organisations and we've been hearing from fundraisers uh, about their experience of actively raising money during this time. But it definitely feels like there's been a change in mindset and a change in approach within organisations as they move from that initial crisis response mode into thinking a lot more about what the future looks like and starting to make plans for the future. So I'm keen to reflect that in the podcasts and over the next couple of episodes I'm going to be talking to people who are working across the sector so who have I guess a a broader view of of what's been going on over the last three months uh, and asking them to share their thoughts on what they think the future looks like and where they'd be advising arts organisations to focus at the moment. My guest for this episode is Dana Siegel who is an international fundraising and management consultant Dana does a huge amount of work with arts organisations, both through Adapt for Arts and through the Management Centre. And she's also one of the deputy directors of the National Arts Fundraising School. But on top of that, she also works with uh, major INGOs and organisations working across the charity sector. I always love chatting to Dana. I always come away from conversations with her, um, feeling inspired, feeling motivated. She's got this great ability to sort of spark new ideas uh, and new ways of looking at things. So I was really looking forward to hearing her thoughts on how the arts and culture sector had responded to COVID in terms of fundraising and where she thinks we go from here. Hi Dana, how are you? Hi David, I am, ooh, I'm a mixed bag this week, certainly in terms of the news that's come out for our sector that I know we're going to probably talk about in detail here, but um, yeah, a bit of a mixed bag, some some good things and some bad things. Still, I'm still very much locked down. I'm, I'm of the camp that's remaining at home for a little bit longer. Um, how are you doing? I'm not too bad, not too bad, thanks. Yeah, it's it's a sort of weird vibe at the moment, isn't it? I live just down the road from a pub which opened on Monday. 
and I love going to the pub, but I st- I'm still not quite in that in that space. I'm not quite ready to to venture mm. back there just yet. Yeah, there's been some news this morning that quite a few pubs have had to shut down due to positive cases mm. of coronavirus, and I'm like. I think three days has got to be a record high of kind of a re-emergence of this. So, um, yeah, I remain uh, optimistic, but currently sceptical about the situation, uh, which, of course, then obviously has big implications when we're thinking about that in a work context as well. So. So for those who haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, do you want to just say a bit about who you are, what you do, a bit about your background? Yeah, I'd love to. So um, I work as a fundraising and management consultant, predominantly with arts and cultural charities, but I also do a lot of work outside of the arts and cultural sector with international development charities, education charities, health charities. And I think that combination and that mix is really good because it really informs my work with cultural organisations in a way that makes sure that some of the best learning and practice from outside of the arts comes into it as well. Um, I started my fundraising journey many, many, many moons ago at the Roundhouse in Camden and kind of worked my way through various fundraising roles in different organisations before becoming a a consultant full-time. And I do that uh, with the Management Centre who run the National Arts Fundraising School, as well as a company called Adapt for Arts that I run with Steph Graham, who's based up in Manchester. So let's keep, yeah, busy in all different types of fronts. And it's definitely been an interesting few months to kind of observe how the sector's responded, compare that a little bit to how the sector has responded more broadly in terms of the charitable sector as well. And obviously been supporting a lot of fantastic organizations to secure that emergency funding that they need to keep going so that we can go back when they're open and when they're touring and and enjoy all that good stuff we loved before this crisis yeah because obviously chatting to you outside of the podcast i know you've been incredibly busy uh, as you say support supporting people working on uh, emergency applications so so what are the kind of things you've been up to then during lockdown what are the the inquiries what 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 questions are you getting from organizations at this time it's been a very in many ways a bit of a groundhog day kind of few months in that what we've found certainly what i've found is that i'm having regular conversations with organizations that seem to be a conversation that is like okay what are we doing now what's happening now there's a lot of kind of scoping the existing situation but also, to be honest with you, sitting in the uncertainty of it as well. So there's a lot of financial reforecasting and planning. There's a lot of emergency appeal writing and uh, a lot of conversations about how to communicate with staff, with supporters effectively during this time as well. And as things have changed pretty much on a day-to-day basis, organisations have had to revisit that conversation time and time again. So it's felt like a real tester, I think, of organisations' ability to sit in the unknown for a bit and be okay with the uncertainty and be okay with having to replan everything again and again. You know, it's just, so in a weird way, it's felt a bit repetitive, um, not getting any easier. um, And just a little bit, really just a very, very strange time in my (laughs) career I I got into this job because I love to support organizations to grow and develop 
Um, I didn't necessarily get into this job because I love to support organizations to just about survive. So it's become a really different requirement, I think, for me as a consultant to provide an additional layer of pastoral care to the organizations and the people within those organizations and an extra bit of confidence and reassurance using my knowledge and expertise from the wider space um, to help them navigate these crazy times. And in terms of that uncertainty, because I reckon if you asked most arts organizations, they'd say they thrive on that. Mm. Is that true? And have you seen that there are different types of organizations are better suited to, to living in that uncertainty? Very interesting. I would love to know your perspectives as well, David, in terms of some of the organizations you work with. I would say that there has been three different types of organizations. There are the organizations who are adapting, have adapted, will continue to adapt quite quickly, either by kind of pivoting their activities in a really meaningful way or using their assets to support the wider coronavirus crisis pandemic. Um, generally, those organizations tend to have been the ones who have been quite uh, self-reliant for a long time, not very dependent on institutional funding, and have generally had quite a dynamic uh, leadership team, maybe people who've come from outside the sector, or people who have learnt how to lead just by developing their grassroots initiative. So it's not come from a a pre-prescribed place of what arts leadership looks like, you know? Um, so I'd say there's, there's that camp. So organizations who are absolutely in a natural space to adapt and are therefore somewhat thriving within that. Then I would say there are the ones who are saying, we're really ready to adapt, but actually there's that, when it comes to sitting in the uncertainty, there's still a certain drive or need to push through a solution of some sort to try and reach some sort of agreement or consensus when actually the best thing that that board or that executive team should be doing is saying, we need to wait for it. We need to wait a little bit longer in order to make that decision. And then that decision and then that decision. And then I think there are just some organizations that for loads of different reasons, and it's not always negative reasons or pre-existing challenges that have stopped them from not being able to adapt in this environment. Sometimes it is just the fact that the way that they go about everything that they do has been completely interrupted by this. And that's not because they haven't been fantastic at scenario planning. It's just the fact is that they rely on people congregating in a single space, either at a particular point in the year or throughout the year. And that's been challenged through this pandemic. So there's sort of three different experiences that I've had and in all of those situations, I think the conversations have been the same. What's been interesting to observe is how people are going about making those decisions, how comfortable they are with not making decisions at certain points as well. So that's definitely been my experience, but I'm also really curious about whether you feel that kind of matches or mirrors yours as well in terms of people. Yeah, I, I think it does. I mean, I, I think you get, a large number of arts and cultural organizations who who are led by these really entrepreneurial creative thinkers who are able to see their way through problems and are able to, to come up with interesting solutions um, and I think 
I think that does tend to favour the smaller organisations a little bit because you've got organisations who are just used to not having any money and are used to having to adapt their work, cut their clothes Absolutely. to what's going on. So for them, this is just, well, it's a bit more extreme, but it's still they're used to going through that process, commissioning stuff quite at quite short notice or quite, quite short lead-in times. It, it's really highlighted who understands their community as well, I think. Yeah. So I, I'm thinking of the, uh, the local theatre here that, uh, near where I live that had only reopened back in December and I was really worried for them because they hadn't really built up that momentum they hadn't really built up that that network that community around them uh, but one of the first things they started doing was selling proper real ale and a really varied selection of, of really nice beers for takeaway doing nice. delivery and because they could really tell I mean Carl Shorten where I live is it's a really sort of real pub area and as soon as mm -hmm. all the pubs closed that was the big thing the community was worried about and the theatre were the first, pe first people to say, actually, we can help with this and we can make a bit of money and we can build up that network. So I suspect they will come out of this with a, a closer community around them than, than when they closed in, in March, which I think is really nice. Absolutely. That's such a great example. It's, it's really nice. I, I've spent more money on, in there on beer than I have on tickets so far. <laughs> um, and I sort of see it as a philanthropic gesture every time I go in there to try whichever stout or porter they've got on tap that's a great piece of mental accounting there <laughs> it's, it's, it's exactly how i budget it it's um i'm not quite putting it on my uh charitable donations list when i do my, my, tax, my tax, return. tax return later but uh but it does justify why i can go a couple of times a week rather than maybe just just once mm. uh, i think uh, have you also seen that a lot of it comes down to their risk appetite as an organisation or as a board, as a leadership. There are some that absolutely pulled the plug really early on and said, yeah, the best thing we can do is just protect where we are now. Let's, let's reduce the, the cost as much as we can, rather yeah. than trying to find ways around it, which, which may or may not have been right for organisations. I think that's really interesting. And actually, the other group of people that maybe we haven't addressed in terms of the way they've responded are people who have been uh, very heavily reliant, specifically say on Arts Council subsidy, who can actually carry on continuing what they're doing in a way that's just slightly reduced rather than anything else. So it's been quite interesting on uh, my board, uh, so I'm a, the chair of Emergency Exit Arts, which is an outdoor arts company working across the UK. Uh, we do quite large scale events, you know, pyrotechnics and fireworks displays which gather huge crowds of people as well as quite small and intimate participatory events in schools or in parks and things with smaller groups of people but everything is about the congregation of people in, in space and it's been very interesting in our board conversations uh, where our chief exec has been reporting conversations that they've had with other partner organizations across the UK some of whom are saying, oh, well, you know, we, we're going to be commissioning this person to do a piece and that person. And he's kind of been going, that's so frustrating. We, we're not in a position to do that. Why can't we do that? And I'm saying, well, look at the balance of their accounts. If that organization is 70% funded by Arts Council and they've had that secured, they can access additional funding and they've had it secured for another year. Then they're in quite a confident position to take a bit of a risk when it comes to commissioning and things like that. Um, so that's an interesting group of people i think who have not been as affected as other companies who are as we know more self-reliant on earned income and other income in order to supplement some of that subsidy that they get in lower levels i think the risk appetite is very interesting from a board and leadership perspective 
it's completely tied to, I believe, how important the organization perceives its beneficiaries and its communities to be. Because the organizations that have pushed through and changed the way that they've delivered their artistic output are the ones who have done so because they've said, ultimately, we need to reach the people that we have been reaching this time. We need to be able to support those people to still get what they need from our organization. So I think that the risk appetite is really directly linked to how much those arts organizations do see themselves as a charitable organization with a mission to fulfill. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's a really interesting point. It reminds me of something that Dominic Haddock said when I, I chatted to him a few episodes ago, because we're, we're not really used to talking about service users or thinking that way. But one of the things that really stood out from, from my conversation with Dominic was when he was saying, at the heart of everything we did was this realization, our role is just to put music in people's lives. And we made all the decisions around making sure that we were still giving people access to, to high quality. Exactly. Exactly. And that's so true of emergency exit arts. You know, we are an outdoor company. That is where the 40 years of our skills have been developed. However, uh, we have during lockdown delivered a live television broadcast project, um, which is something that as an organization, it's never been done before by the organization. And they sort of beautifully figured it out as they were going really. And, and the purpose was to engage the people in Thamesmead um, to still enjoy arts and culture, to still do some creative stuff locally, where normally we would be delivering a big outdoor arts festival there. So, but the need was, we still need to make sure that people in Thamesmead have a good time for the next couple of months. So absolutely, I think as soon as you're led by that, um, then comes the question of whether you have the bravery to take those risks and challenge yourself creatively as an organization to then respond to that. Um, and it doesn't mean that it has to be perfect. It doesn't mean that it has to be brilliant. Um, the value, the demonstration of value by organizations is in the effort that they put into an initiative, not necessarily the quote quality of the output, I think. So one of the reasons I was really keen to, to chat to you and to, to get you on the podcast is, as you said at the beginning, you're working both within the arts sector, but you're also working with organisations uh, in other parts of the charity sector as well. So from that perspective, if you were evaluating how the arts sector has, has responded, particularly in terms of fundraising over the last three months, what do you think we've done well as a sector? What are the bits you think actually on reflection we probably didn't get right or could have, could have done better? So compared to, I suppose, the wider sector, I think what's been particularly interesting and I think a great success is the news announced this week. The fact that there has been a lobbying process that has resulted in a large contribution from the government towards our sector is a massive achievement. And I think done through a lot of rallying of specific influencing and lobbying groups across our sector, whether that's at the quote higher echelons of kind of arm's length bodies to DCMS right through to grassroots campaigns like the public campaign for the arts and stuff like that, where it's been about getting petitions and getting volumes and numbers of people behind this process. So 
that I think has been a good success. And I think directed in the right place because there are just a lot of organizations in our sector who need that bailout, who need that support to just stay afloat and mothball until they're able to reopen. I think maybe where we could have improved over the last few months, and I think there have been great specific examples and a lot of not so great examples, is really creating that same energy and rallying around our supporters and our audiences to engage people in philanthropy. Unfortunately, so much of the narrative that came out of particularly venues that hit my inbox was so about the fact that we've had to shut, we are a venue, we've now closed our doors, we, we, we. There was so little about the impact of that on the people that as a supporter I actually care about. And it was only the fundraising appeals that hit my inbox that actually spoke about the service users, the beneficiaries, the people that the arts organizations actually trying to support they're the ones that I gave money to, not the appeals that just said, oh, we're sharp. Could you maybe convert your ticket and or possibly give us a donation? To me, that didn't feel like a true articulation of the value of our sector. And I think, unfortunately, there was probably a little bit of like, okay, that major organization did it that way. So I'm kind of going to copy that and hope that that works for me and my organization. And I just felt a real lack of creativity in that moment when it came to communicating a crisis appeal but then I think as a sector we've never had to do any emergency appeals whereas you know when I work with an organization like MSF you know they do this all the time they know exactly how to communicate in a crisis so for them to suddenly pivot to shift their communications towards how COVID-19 is affecting the most vulnerable across the world is in their DNA. It's not necessarily in arts cultural's DNA to, to talk in a crisis format. So I think that's been a really interesting um, experience, certainly as a supporter and as a donor, uh, to watch and observe, as well as obviously someone who would support an organisation to develop that appeal. Do you think if more arts fundraising was not necessarily crisis-led, but sort of bringing in some of that DNA during normal times, do you think that would be a good position to be in going forwards? I think so. I, I mean, I think it's a tricky one because this has really shaken things in that we don't, more people are thinking about scenario planning and crisis management in our sector than they ever have before. So if they're not also embedding that into their fundraising practice, whether that's through communications, whether that's through emergency appeal, and their marketing and their kind of communications process as an organization, then they are probably not future-proofing themselves, even after quite a tough lesson. Right? So I do think that's a very important thing to, to ensure organizations are thinking about going forward because many did not truly consider what would happen if their organization was on the line on the like so yeah it's it's an interesting challenge and I, I find a lot of I don't know about you David but I find quite a bit of resistance to that way of talking from a lot of arts charities and arts organizations because they go oh we're not we're not talking like that we shouldn't be talking like that it's like well <laughs> you definitely should be now <laughs> because it's an emergency crisis pandemic <laughs> it's just 
it's a tough time. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I think it's almost as if part of that is we get so used to talking the arts council language where we have to show everything's fantastic, we're completely sustainable, there's never going to be a pr any problems if you give us this for your other funding versus that messaging that we know is much more effective when we're talking to, to private donors, to, to individuals. Exactly. I think it's a really interesting point as well about whether organisations will learn from this, because I think when you look at things like um, the Battersea Arts Centre fire or the um, Glasgow Art School fire, yeah, both those organisations were able to respond very quickly, but I wonder how many organisations thought, yeah, we're a building as well, maybe we need to have a plan in place just in case that ever happens to us. Fingers crossed we never have to use it. And I suspect many people, even after those, those sort of two big events, didn't say, we probably need to give at least five minutes thought to this just in case the worst happens. Absolutely. And actually, um, as part of the um, virtual art summit conference that uh, we're organising for the 18th of August, one of the sessions is going to be about what we can learn from the Notre Dame crisis. Mm. And, you know, we have essentially the leading expert who supported the Notre Dame Foundation to raise hundreds of millions of pounds telling us about what needed to be done. His experiences in the wider charitable sector with emergency appeals, with crisis appeals. Again, you're so right. As organisations, where, wh how we are not doing that preparation and making sure that we have at least some sort of case for support in the file that becomes an emergency case for support. If people are not at least investing in that after this, I'm not sure they're really future-proofing themselves because as we've learned with climate change, with urban, rapid urbanization, with these big mega trends happening around the world, there will be consequences um, to that for our organizations that we need to kind of be prepared of and aware of. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I think people need to make sure that that is absolutely part of their forward planning when it comes to their fundraising you mentioned that you've seen some great specific examples so who are the people that you think have absolutely sort of smashed this out of the park during, during so i think probably my favorite example is venture arts in manchester who are an amazing organization that work with learning disabled artists to make sure that they're fairly represented across our sector you know as artists as audiences as curators as leaders as trustees they have a, a, a wonderful remit to elevate the creative and social contribution of learning disabled people uh, to our sector as part of their uh, remit of work they run a studio for learning disabled artists um, and they really work to develop their talent in those studios you know some of their artists have had pieces displayed in like Manchester Art Gallery, captured as part of collections, really incredible work. Obviously coronavirus hit and a space that's normally open if so many days a week suddenly had to be shut and the first thing they did is they reached out to any supporter, audience member, person who's come to exhibitions and said okay we're hitting a crisis here all of the amazing learning disabled artists who are coming and accessing our space are not able to do so anymore. We need to get iPads out to them. We need to get art kits out to them. We need to make sure that they're supported to continue being creative and continue developing their practice over this time. 
here are the very specific and brilliant and tangible ways that you can make that happen. And, you know, they have one fundraiser in their team. She does, you know, all fundraising. So it's not like they have a major massive team, but I think they got this appeal out within the first week or two of the crisis hitting. And it's been a huge success for them ever since they've been able to communicate that the appeal has also helped them communicate their case to uh, grant makers who've then issued them additional grants funding. And, you know, they are now secure for the next year and they're able to continue fulfilling their mission and continue supporting the artists that they would ordinarily support in a different capacity. And that's because they put the artists first and they said, our job here is to do everything we can to make sure that those artists continue to be artists. And it allowed them to really shape their communications and, and the way that they did everything. So that is just, that's an example of a small organization with a sole fundraiser, not loads of money to invest in fundraising, just absolutely doing it in the way that it should be done to raise the funds that they need. So I think they're a really good example of just how beneficial it is to put your beneficiaries first. As you say, putting that investment and getting the messaging right rather than something glossy, something, something shiny. And even in the messaging in terms of keeping me updated on what's been happening as well. You know, it's not like I donated to that appeal and I've never heard back. You know, I've had really lovely communication since that, have come not just from the fundraiser, but from trustees as well, uh, and messages from the artists who are able to do their thing at home now, which is just amazing. So I feel like I've been taken on a journey with that organization and that, you know, when a bit of bad news comes out, if I then get an email from them in my inbox saying, but guess what, your support is making sure that this is still happening. It becomes a really important thing for me in this context, actually something to hold on to that's positive and I think that's what supporters are really looking for at the moment you know making a donation is a way of solving something why make that feeling temporary for people why not extend that feeling for them why not keep that feeling going for them during this time that's a really nice way of thinking about it isn't it so looking forward what do you think the next six to 12 months look like for arts fundraising? And what would you be encouraging organisations to think about and start putting in place? So I think that, I have to be honest, I remain on the more cynical side of the government's approach to controlling and managing the virus, which means that I am ensuring that any scenario planning that I'm doing with the organizations that I work with includes factoring in potential second waves or potential third waves of the virus, whether that's at a high level, which would require a further lockdown and quarantine, or just at a low enough level that means that social distancing measures will have to be in place for a significantly long period of time. Part of the reason for this is a bit what we were talking about earlier, David, it's making sure that they are prepared for any further emergency or crisis-based situations, which means that organizations need to think about how they're communicating with all of their stakeholders to communicate both positive and potentially rounds of further negative news as well. 
um, and thinking a lot about what they can offer even in periods where maybe traditionally their offer that includes getting loads of people in a room is not necessarily going to happen. So in terms of what that looks like for arts fundraising, I think we will continue to see good levels of support from the honestly incredible trusts and foundations that support this sector who have responded fantastically, provided really good emergency funding, you know, quick turnarounds. We have to absolutely commend those people for really transforming their processes quickly enough to make sure that that money came and has helped as many organisations as possible. So I think we'll see further investments in that type of funding that might also move towards stabilisation funds for organisations rather than just <laughs> mothballing and you know, cash flow management funds, which means that organisations will have to start communicating that innovation, that creativity, that adaptability as to how they're going to continue to engage people uh, continue to support their business models or change their business models and really think about what areas of their organization they need to be investing in, of which fundraising is absolutely one of those. So I, I do think organizations are going to have to compete with each other to really communicate to not just grant makers and statutory support, but also some of their private donors about some of those fundamental shifts that they might need to make uh, in terms of investment and in terms of yeah, business models and things like that. So there's going to be a lot of a lot of big thinking and a lot of big strategic thinking that needs to be done over the few months, which is not a bad thing if we also think that a lot of our activity is quiet and we actually have the opportunity as boards, as executive teams, as staff members, as volunteers to all come together and go through a, a organizational processes that will allow us to do that. That's right. That, that was quite a lot, I think, smushed into one big thought. Uh, let me go back to the points about specific areas of fundraising. So trust and foundation support, I think, will be maintained. We have to be aware, of course, that um, their investments and endowments have taken a hit um, because of the changes in the global market, which means that it, it might get more competitive. It's going to require more investment in fundraising again, because you need to make sure that you're communicating that case effectively and that you are competing in that space. I think in terms of individual giving, it really depends on two things. The wider economic situation and whether we will start to see a lot of redundancies and job losses across the board, across other sectors. But having said that, you know, even with the 2008 financial crisis, Individual giving overall in this country took a bit of a hit, but it recovered quite quickly and it's been very stable since. So I think overall we'll probably see similar and the same levels of investment um, from individuals in the arts. And then on a corporate side, uh, corporate support has been declining for a very, very long time. I'm not sure that's necessarily an area that I would be advising a lot of my clients to be investing in from a fundraising perspective we know that individual giving is the most sustainable longer term. So I would definitely be advising them to look at uh, how they are forging, building relationships with the stakeholders across the board uh, to make sure that they're turning that into a philanthropic and ongoing relationship. And for organisations that might have um, sort of stepped back a little bit or maybe taken their foot off the gas on fundraising over these, these three months, mm. what advice would you be giving them to try and build that momentum back up? Because I think those are the organisations that are going to have a, a particular challenge, aren't they? 
Absolutely. I mean, I think if, if you are still operating as an organization where you make uh, programmatic, artistic, creative decisions separately to your fundraising functions, that needs to stop now because those things need to inform each other going forward. Otherwise, those organizations are going to make it impossible for themselves to meaningfully re-engage everyone back in a process of having, having a relationship with that organization, donating philanthropically, engaging with their services. So uh, if organizations are still operating in that way, there's, there's definitely a need to stop that now because those things can inform each other in really beautiful ways when they are done properly and together. Don't have program conversations without your fundraisers in the room, basically, is what I would say. What do you think, David? I'm really curious. Well, so I was just thinking on that, on that point, I worked for an organisation where the fundraising department would only ever know what was coming up in the next season on the day it was announced to, to the press. So we had to wait for the press announcement before we could find out to then go out to, to supporters. And it got to a point where we'd be having meetings with the chief executive and part of the meeting would be just sort of scouring around the office to try and find any clues as to what might be coming up in the next season. And you think, how on earth can you get support for this? How, how do you expect us to go and go and pitch this to potential supporters if you won't tell us what it is uh, who's going to be involved in it you'd like to think that organizations have moved on a bit from them but uh... yeah unfortunately i've got two <laughs> similar stories about that in my various experiences and there's just not the time for that now because the wonderful thing is if you have very creative fundraisers in your organization who have ideas about what initiatives events programs activities would work really well and complement fundraising activity but you're not giving them the space to communicate that mm. you're making their job 10 times harder than it needs to be so i really hope that organizations move on in that respect and it's very interesting as well thinking about the role of fundraisers in the leadership of the organization and the creative leadership of the organization going forward there's an example of a National Arts Fundraising School alumni who works at a theatre in the north. And they had to furlough, obviously, the majority of their staff, which meant that their development team had to become the box office for the organisation. And the, the impact that that has had on leveraging donations and extra support from the public has been phenomenal. And that process has enabled that person to understand what fundamental changes they need to make to their box office, ticketing system processes and front of house staff training in order to maximize fundraising, which she can now implement going forward. So, you know, put your fundraisers across your organization. They will be immensely useful and helpful in different areas. And I think provide a really amazing creative and sustainable perspective on what the organization can be doing for its fundraising going forward and potentially a, a silver lining there if organizations are looking at redundancies and you are working with a much much smaller team that people are just going to have to be working across different areas absolutely 
I want to elevate you to your rightful position now as supreme ruler of the arts fundraising world, uh, which I think again, most people would agree is, is the position you should have held for, for a while. <laughs> um, but also there's been a lot of talk about, about this new normal and, and using this as a chance to redesign what the future looks like. So if we gave you complete control to redesign arts fundraising going forward, what would that look like? What are the things that you'd bring in? What are the things you'd stop? What might stay the same? I love that question. So if I was starting again, I would build every organization's model, starting with individual giving and then working my way across the different fundraising streams, whether that's bids, statutory support, everything like that. At the moment, the majority of our sector starts with Arts Council as their, you know, base. Then they do grants. Then they might do a bit of corporate. Then they might do a little bit of individual giving. And obviously earned income activities. I would build like the majority of the world's largest NGOs and INGOs. And I would start with individual giving being the widest and highest percentage of my base so I would begin investment in that process which would call for a complete overhaul of really the profession the skills um, how the organizations are structured you know all of that I would hope that it would do a number of things I hope that it would enable arts charities to communicate themselves as a charity first and that the arts becomes the how they achieve their mission rather than just the, the what they do. I would hope that it would ensure that there was a wider representation on the leadership and throughout the organization of fundraising and that there would be a fundraising culture embedded across the organizations. And I think, you know, we spend a lot of time moaning about why don't people love the arts the most? Like, why, why do people like us the least? The reason that health charities, education charities, social justice charities, international development charities always rank higher in donor surveys is because they have loads and loads and loads of individual supporters. Of course, if we're not investing in individual giving as a sector, how can we expect people to be advocates for us? How can we expect people to go, oh yeah, I totally care about that as well. So it will have a positive knock-on effect on the way that the value of the arts is perceived by the general public if we are propped by the general public in a really, really significant way. And I'm not saying there isn't room for statutory support. I'm not saying there isn't room for high-ranking philanthropy and grant giving but I would just start from that place first and and build everything on that because that is how organizations like UNICEF, MSF, Greenpeace have been able to grow and achieve their charitable missions in the way that they have. And how much of that focus then is because we, we know that individual giving is the most sustainable and how much of that is because actually our individual donors by and large are our audiences they are our service users so you're effectively putting them at the heart of, of fundraising i think that it's for both of those reasons david i think it's we know it's the most sustainable um fundraising stream and um, 
And it's the only thing that really is able to grow if we all make a concerted effort to grow it. As in, the more of us that are communicating to individuals about why they should support arts organizations, the more likely it is that more people will support arts organizations. So it's, it's actually an all boats float when the tide comes in situation for our sector, rather than it being another big set of competitions. You know, with trust and foundations fundraising, there are a certain amount of trusts that an organization can apply to. And those trusts have a certain amount of money that they can give out. We can't control that as much as maybe we could control the growth of individual giving overall for our sector. And as you rightly pointed out, we engage with audiences, we engage with participants, um, we have all of these people who interact with what we do, and there is a unique opportunity to galvanize those people. And if we started from them first and built our models of our organization from them first, I think it would really change things. I really do. So what are the kind of things then you think organizations should be doing if we want to make this a reality, if we want to make this happen? So I would say, apart from tear down everything and start again, investment in individual giving, investment in fundraising overall, looking at, and you know, when, when an organization is assessing and analyzing and developing its fundraising strategy, looking at the wider charitable sector for inspiration about models, targets, approaches, tactics. I'd say organizations at this stage absolutely have to invest in their digital skills and capacity and fundraising. But basically what I'm saying is organizations need to spend money on it. It's the only thing they can do. And fundraisers have always been in a notoriously difficult position where every penny is scrutinized for what the potential return on investment will be of that money. We don't plow money into marketing and ask our marketing managers to tell us exactly how many seats they think they're going to sell for every single show. There's a sort of trust in the marketing process that the more you invest, the greater rewards you'll reap. It's true of fundraising. Organizations just need to trust in that process and need to trust in that because it does work. It works across the third sector. Every organization that I've worked with that has invested well in its fundraising has raised more money. So I think that trust needs to be there, big, big, big style. And there is going to be that tension coming up, isn't there? Because some organisations just won't have the money to invest in fundraising and others will be looking at where they can cut. Mm-hmm. And, and there is going to be that temptation to try and spread those cuts across all functions of, of an organisation rather than perhaps making some slightly more difficult decisions of saying, actually, we need to protect these functions because actually it's, it may save us money in the short term, but longer term, actually, we can be worse off if we, if we cut these things. That's very true. So how, how do you think organisations can make that case or fundraisers listening who have sort of got one eye on their senior management team or trustees who might be looking to cut? How, how do they make that case to keep that investment or maybe even to invest more in fundraising at this time? Mm. I would say that you need to remind them that fundraising is audience development work because I think often people think of those as two very separate functions in an organization. And I think what's going to happen now is that over the next sort of 12, 18 months, the conversation 
in our sector is going to be all about audience development, kind of like audience redevelopment, right? How do we get people back in? How do we attract them back into our venues? How do we attract them to our shows? You know, how do we make sure that they feel safe, comfortable, happy to re-engage with what we're doing? Fundraising is audience development. And if it's not a part of that audience development strategy, then you might solve the audience development problem for now, but you're not, you're missing out on the opportunity to potentially turn all of that work into a really long-term investment. So uh, yeah, it's, it's not an easy thing to do to articulate this. And I, I've been in a position myself as a fundraiser trying to make the case to my boards, use the evidence around in terms of other organizations, information about how much they invest and how much they're then able to raise use the successful examples from this period of time like the venture arts of this world and other organizations to say look look what happened when we just invested that little bit or look what happened when they just invested that little bit in their fundraising over that time that's what helped their organization survive like fundraising is survival as much as the rest of it so yeah it's not an easy case to make but um it's an important one to make, a really, really important one to make. And there's been some fantastic things to think about and so, so great to get your, your thoughts on just how the sector's done during this time. I'm going to end with one last question, which is uh, the question I've asked everyone during this. Uh, what, what's been bringing you joy during lockdown? And what are the things you hope continue when we come out the other side of this, um, either <sighs> personally or professionally? So things have been bringing me joy out of lockdown. I have to say... Fundraising Twitter has felt like the most lovely place since lockdown. The amount of people that I've connected with, both in the art sector, both outside the sector, in terms of Zooms, lots of Twitter chats, lots of kind of interactions and stuff. I've definitely felt a rallying around of the fundraising community, which has brought me a lot of joy and has really shown me who the lovely people in my life are. And so that I would say has been something that's great. I really hope that is able to continue and to thrive and that we can all access this really important peer support, not just within the sector, but beyond the, sec beyond the art sector to continue, yeah, working the way that we are and doing all the great stuff that we're doing. So that has been something that's brought me real, real amounts of joy over this period. In terms of other things that have brought me joy, interestingly, this lockdown period is the first opportunity that I've had to kind of have a garden. Such a millennial problem, isn't it? Like, oh my God, I actually have a garden. I've, I'm not a massive gardener or anything like that. I have found the process of going out and tending to stuff and watching stuff grow slowly, uh, the process of kind of deadheading flowers in order to allow space for the new stuff, a really important metaphor for the kind of work that organizations need to be doing throughout this crisis and beyond. Sometimes you have to snip off some deadheads to allow some other space to grow and you need to nurture and tend to this stuff on a daily basis. So it's kind of proved a really nice metaphor for me for how I continuing to approach responding to this crisis and knowing that with the right amount of time, support, nurturing, the bounty is coming in terms of 
support, change, all of that good stuff. <laughs> it's been so great to chat to you as always. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Uh, and if people want to get in touch with you, what's the, what's the best way of reaching you? Thank you, David. It's been so nice to chat. So you can find me on Twitter at Dana K. Siegel. Um, that is also my website. And on the 18th of August, you can find me online and David as well, um, because we're going to be hosting a really important conversation exploring the future of arts fundraising. Um, so if you want details of that, just check out my Twitter feed. And I hope to see you there. And thank you so much for taking the time out, not just for listening to us, but also taking a bit of time out for yourself as well. Huge thanks to the wonderful Dana Siegel for giving up her time and being my guest today. Lots to think about and hopefully lots to spark ideas and some thoughts in your mind as well. Some of the things that really stood out for me, I really like Dana's idea of putting individual giving at the heart of our fundraising strategies. And often it is one of the, the later funding streams that we turn to, having looked at statutory funding, having looked at trusts and foundations. And even when we do look at individual giving, it tends to be in quite a transactional way, as Dana mentioned. It is almost the exact opposite to the model used by most of the large successful fundraising organisations. And I guess the pushback from organisations would be, well, we know only a small percentage of people donate to the arts. But I think Dana made that really interesting point that that number's low because actually we're not asking, and we're not asking particularly well when it comes to individual giving. And we've almost built up this chicken and egg situation, this self-fulfilling prophecy where we look at those figures, we say, okay, people aren't donating to the arts, so we will make that a smaller part of our fundraising mix and we won't invest in asking people. And by not asking people, it means a smaller percentage of people are actually donating. I've often wondered this when people talk about making the charitable case for the arts as a whole and whether that actually resonates with people. And I think Diana's point is really interesting that actually by not focusing on that sector wide, by, by focusing on individual organisations and building up individual giving at an organisational level, it has that knock on effect of, of raising the bar across the, the sector. And I think that'd be a really interesting area to explore further. Dana also talked about how we need to make that case that this is part of audience development. And I think that's a really timely conversation for organisations to be having. Again, as Dana said, that's where the focus is going to be as we start to reopen, as we start to rebuild over this short and medium term. So linking fundraising and particularly individual giving into those conversations and making sure we have a seat at the table there, I think is a really smart way of of making sure that, that investment continues in individual giving and that it is a unified, a sort of joined up strategic approach to those relationships rather than this kind of separate siloed approach that we see in a lot of organisations at the moment. And finally, I think Dana's gardening metaphor at the end there is, is just perfect. This idea that we can't just invest in fundraising or plant the seed of fundraising at the beginning and, and leave it. The fact that it does take time to see the results of that work, the fact that we need to put that work in, I think is is great. And particularly that final point that actually sometimes if we want to see growth, if we want to see success, we've got to cut away at the things that aren't working, the things that are holding us back, difficult as those decisions may be. 
During the conversation, you will have heard Dana subtly, not so subtly, mentioning the fantastic International Arts Fundraising Summit that she's helped to organise that's taking place on the 18th of August. Uh, Dana has been working with, obviously, the team at the National Arts Fundraising School and the team at Fundraising Everywhere, so that's a great mix of people there. You know that's going to be a high-quality event. Pulling together speakers from across the arts fundraising world, so not just from here in the UK, but speakers from, from around the world, specialists in their fields, sharing their experiences of fundraising and also looking to the future. It's going to be a really fantastic event. Tickets are an absolute steal. You can find more information about the lineup, about the sessions and about tickets at fundraisingeverywhere.com forward slash arts. And finally, a shameless plug from me. So I think like most people working in the arts, I've been really upset watching the impact this has had on the talented people that, that work across the arts and culture sector. And given my background in music uh, and my link to friends and family who will work as professional musicians, uh, it's the plight of musicians that has, has really, um, really upset me during this time. Obviously, people saw their entire livelihoods disappear overnight when concert halls, theatres, opera houses, festivals, gigs, all of that closed down as a result of, of lockdown with no real idea when that work's going to come back. And I think just that thought of being in that that position and no freelancers live a precarious life anyway, but just knowing that you're not going to be able to work and wondering what that means for keeping a roof over your head, getting food on the table, looking after your family, uh, it's, it's just horrible. So since June, I've I've been trying to do something to help help musicians, which is a charity here in the UK that's been providing hardship grants for musicians who have seen all of their work disappear as a result of coronavirus. So I've been trying to run 262 miles, which is the distance between London and Barnard Castle, a political reference that only makes sense in the UK, uh, but to try and raise money for help musicians. So just coming up to halfway there, hopefully by the time this podcast episode goes out, we'll have crossed the halfway mark. And the amazing news is, thanks to the generosity of friends, family, wonderful fundraisers, we've raised enough to provide two hardship grants to support two musicians. That's two musicians who have had some of that stress lifted, some of that anxiety lifted, uh, and given just that little bit more financial stability, even if it's just, just for a month. I'd love to raise enough to cover a third hardship grant if we can by the time I finish the run at the end of August. So if you value live music, if you've enjoyed these podcasts, if you just want to help out musicians, please check out apollofundraising.com forward slash run. I just want to say a massive thank you to everyone that's sponsored and donated so far. That's it for episode eight. Uh, I'll be back next week with another fantastic guest. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Huge thanks again to Dana for giving up her time and her expertise. And I look forward to bringing you another episode very soon. Bye.